1: of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy, there is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head.
2: Cheers. And we were playing a lot of bars during the week. I was playing in bars and going to high school. next, We opened for Metallica when I was in high school and went, I went to high school the next day. The funniest thing about that is in this same house here, we were playing in a theater in Port Jervis opening for Metallica and Overkill, and the people from Megaforce contacted me because Metallica needed somewhere to stay, and my mother wouldn't let Metallica stay in the house.
3: <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of 2020. My name is Corey Paza and here is Sometimes Once Again. We're missing another member. We- ben-, ben has had to hobble off somewhere for some some uh who knows he's hurt he's hurt himself again as usual but but siobhan cronin is here and i must say happy birthday and thank you for spending your birthday here
0: (laughs) yeah so as everyone may notice if you're watching the youtube i am in a different spot we are about to depart on tour so but with, without going too far into that, we did this week have my dear friend Chris Caffrey of Sabotage TSO, his own solo projects. It, I haven't seen him in so long, as I used to play with him in TSO back in the day, but it was really, really cool to have him tell his story.
3: Yeah, and uh, kind of a treat for me, and I didn't bring it up on the podcast, but you know that the TSO DVDs have been like a family tradition you know, I remember getting them at some point, and I, I might have bought it for myself, but my parents definitely stole it, and they watch it every year at Christmas, so it's a, <laughs> it's been a huge part of my life, and TSO is such a, a it's, they're beyond the level of like a big band, they're just this their own unique thing, and, and Chris talks about, you know, the humble beginnings through through the, the global sensation that they are now, so it's a really interesting episode.
0: Yeah, so without further ado, let's jump right in, part one with Chris Caffrey. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of 2020. My name is Siobhan Cronin. I'm here, as always, with Benny Goodman and Corey Peza, my friends, my cohorts, my Lost symphony bandmates. Hey! As they say, in
1: Mawa, New Jersey.
0: <laughs> and today we, have, today we have a dear, dear friend of mine who I've spent... Time on stage with many times Chris Caffrey of TSO Trans Siberian Orchestra, Sabotage, many other things. Incredible solo person, artist. Uh, yes, solo I, artist.
2: Yes, I play with myself a lot.
1: <laughs> he was with Big Mouth in 1988, so don't forget that. He's
2: not
0: even going to get a word
2: okay, in here. That wait, that was yeah, it was 88. That was 88. Some people know more about me than me. I was with every band on Atlantic that needed a guitar player. From eighty seven through ninety. It was kind of was one of those things. I, I toured with Sabotage and then I was kinda of side stage rhythm guitar player, keyboard player experiment. And then Atlantic saw me and liked me and threw me into Big Mouth. Where I actually met some friends that kinda of did that. But then Atlantic put me into Dirty Looks and then me and the singer and Dirty Looks didn't get along very well. So that was they were doing the uh turn of the screw record and they actually had a really big push that was about to happen for that band and they were atlantic was having home run after home run with bow hill as a producer and the president of atlantic wanted dirty looks to use bow and the singer in dirty looks god i don't like to speak evil about the dead but he he was basically a jackass sometimes but he didn't want to listen to atlanta's atlantic's advice atlantic flew us from the east coast to la spent like 50 grand to record two songs with Bob. wow just to see how it went and i really liked it he was putting in a lot of his background vocal styles the stuff you heard in rat and kicks and that kind of stuff into dirty looks and it, it was still dirty looks but it was the singer said it was homogenized he hated it so he went and said no to it and i guess the president of atlantic was really close with Bo at the time and that didn't go over well and that singer i mean long story short he he put a cigarette out on my arm when i was driving our our rental car on that 101 in in california just to see what it would do you know he was that kind of a he wasn't the most charming individual so he kind of had a sound that he wanted and i was 19 years old nobody told me what to do then and i just didn't really get along with him at well so he said you know we're gonna play things my way or no way and i was like fine i'll do it no way so i did the basic tracks for turn of the screw and wrote a couple uh, riffs and some songs on the record and i bailed and you know i i I think they they redid the rhythms in a different studio anyway and and i never got credited for my songs it was funny there was one part in a song that was like f sharp and the singer didn't credit credit me for it. He's like, Well, you know, it's just natural the song would have went to F sharp there. I'm like, Yeah, so every every song <laughs> riff i ever wrote that you naturally would have been something that went in that direction but um well can i ask you something because you you mentioned you got fifty
1: thousand dollars to do two songs and now we're in 2022 and you're lucky if you got fifty thousand dollars to do two albums like, exactly. could you, could you, exactly. can you can you give us like a perspective of what it used to be like because you know now everybody i mean i'm in my basement right i have a studio down here it looks cool Me too. We, you know, that's what. Yeah, we got to talk about do. your basement too. When we, when we get to here, it.
2: but I have a studio and a full bar. There's twelve pinball machines, <laughs> but you can't. See all of only four of them are on right now. But there's, I, I quit drinking, but there's a lot of booze here. If anybody ever wants to come and get hammered, all right. I got like 200 <laughs> bottles of all, every kind of liquor on the planet. Because once I stopped drinking, I was just like, oh, I just want to buy all these bottles of booze, so I have them. So now I have all these different boozes here, and they look cool. Because that's you know it's all about the blue look, <laughs>
0: for sure. Well, it looks amazing. Like for anyone that yeah, is fun, listening to the, fun,
2: wait, I, to, it's called the silver silver dollar saloon, and it's called that for a reason. I, I can I'll go get them while we're speaking. But there's there's three silver dollars here, and this house is was built I think in the um early 1960s. It's my family's house. We moved here in like '83. And I came back home, I think it was 2007, because the place I lived in the city, the landlord, um, she was actually the daughter of my old landlord of a lot of places I lived in Astoria, and she was getting married and decided she needed the house. And I lived in this house for five years with no lease, because I was just kind of like a family friend kind of thing with those. And she knocked on the door one day, and she's like, I need the house. And I'm like, when? She's like, the end of the month so I had, a, I had a european tour coming up and i dumped everything back home up here at the family my family's house and went on the road and then when i got back home you know i realized my mom was here how much she really couldn't do by herself so i just decided to stay and i took it over and i built my bar and my studio and i got a barn and a beach and a golf course in my backyard and <laughs> i just hang out and hide from the world but uh silver dollar name came, the silver dollar saloon name came because there's a little room over to my right that we built into a bathroom that used to be a dark room because the people that lived here had the one guy was a photographer back when we actually used film you know so it was a dark room in yeah. that and we ripped the ceiling off to put a new one in and he had in the sheetrock he had weird things hidden there was a bank envelope that had these three silver dollars in it and then there was this other envelope that had a bunch of like love letters from his dad to his dad's wife that were written during a war it was like some really weird stuff were in the ceiling but wow. they became the that's what became the silver dollar saloon but that's is where i was hanging It you know everybody got trapped during the the pandemic it's like i really didn't have it that bad because i have almost everything you need or everybody here but people it was like you know yeah. when. Blazer- <laughs> Blazing Saddles when they built the other rock ridge and they're like, we're missing people. You know, it's like, that's Wasn't Blazing
1: Saddles canceled? You can't even watch that. Do you remember that on television when they used to edit Blazing Saddles?
2: I was on an airplane flight. It was not very long ago, probably within the last five years. And Blazing Saddles was the movie on the flight and it was unedited. It was an unedited...
1: Well, that's wild considering they're trying to cancel Gone with the Wind at one point I was hearing. And like, that's a period
0: piece. There was racism.
2: You know, guys, No, I have that little elephant, Wilbur versus Wilbur. Wilbur's the metal. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, Wilbur. On your Instagram, Um, Wilbur
2: makes appearances. Wilbur goes um, everywhere. We do sea glass stuff. Like this is a sea glass birdhouse. And sometimes oh, that's I cool I check out the YouTube really I can't really draw but I can make almost any cartoon character <laughs> you guys know who this ah is? Uh, uh is
1: it, that's not Casper the ghost is no, no it's the no, other it's, guy
2: I'm cereal like Booberry, school. right booberry oh booberry, <laughs> yeah. boo-berry. Yeah, boo-berry. So, luckily he was blue or he wouldn't be able to have his his name you know <laughs> they released that like a limited edition <laughs> like, <laughs> the like knees off the land of lake chick I was just like you know the, the land of lake Container and the chick off of it. Were you guys as twisted as we were when we were kids? We used to take the Land of Lakes container, and we <laughs> we would cut the cardboard and leave the, a flap at the top of the chick's chest. So this is like you know little kid, and, and we cut the knees off and put them underneath to the tape it <laughs> to the back. So when you open up the flap there was like boobs and that's you know and then all of a sudden the chick was too she was too you know racial racist to put on the thing because she was an indian and i'm like god you took away a kid's opportunity to make knee boobs you know? it, just shows, it shows you the difference <laughs> in generations yeah, i know because you did that with the land of lakes there's probably generations of knee boobs just totally <laughs> shed, you know affected by that whole situation because we didn't oh get, we, were, we were like innocently evil back then it's not like nowadays where you got like freaking oh it's like internet dry.
0: evil everyone like trying to take oh, yeah. down the world yeah. online
1: I was just about to say like different generations like so you're like you're fucking with the Land O'Lakes box I'm like I remember stealing my mom's Victoria's Secret magazines that she would get to sell whatever and then watching internet porn go like this You know what I mean? And it tells you, like, with my dial-up modem, my mom's like, why can't I make a call? It's like, Mom, I'm looking at boobs. I've been waiting for 47 minutes, like,
2: on my Mac It went reverse directions, too, because then the internet came, and then the strip club numbers went down, 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 because all the girls were like, oh, wait, I don't have to be around people naked to make money. I'm going to throw me $20 a month. Here's Onlyfans.com. Yeah. Exactly. It, 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 it totally killed a perfectly well, at least for us when we were on the road, it was a perfectly busy, you know, business in this country. they were all over the place. I mean it and then they just all closed down. But I heard it's on the way back again. But I don't know. I haven't been to one in a long time because I haven't been anywhere in a long time. Well,
1: there's <laughs> also the internet and COVID, so you could just go on your camera and do anything for anyone anywhere live, and it's just like yeah. here's your the, the transactional money. I don't have to touch your hundred dollars bills with the cocaine. I just get your Bitcoin and your yeah. Your, but your, I think after
0: COVID, yeah. that everyone's over with there the internet, Bitcoin, so it probably is a surge again. You
2: could get Bitcoin in an ATM. <laughs> I mean, what? Explain that. I guess you add extra Bitcoin. I don't really
3: do the Bitcoin. Oh, thing. I don't. I have no idea. Really that's above either. my pay grade. Even yeah, Bitcoin yeah, experts uh, can't explain it. <laughs>
1: Right. I can't can't even afford a Bitcoin, according to the internet. I think they're like, I I don't even know how much twenty-seven grand or something for a Bitcoin. Forty-six
3: or forty-seven grand at the moment. How
1: rich are you now, Corey?
2: Uh, Not that rich. (laughs) Look, I'm not, I'm not rich on it either. I had a friend of mine who's like, look, I need help. If you buy, buy Bitcoins, I get a bonus of money. So I bought some Bitcoins with him to give him a bonus of money, and it went down like sixty percent. And I'm like, oh, thanks. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> now i look like the asshole business that whole business that was like earl in the early in 2021 and it it sucked ass since then i mean those things are not i told everybody i said i would be really cautious about that because eventually you're trying to replace real money with that money somebody's going to regulate it and then everything's going to go to zero and there's going to be bitcoin central that's going to have Control. And all these yeah. people that sank all this money into these things, I always tell them, I'm like, if you made it, take it out. Me, it might take me 60 years to get back that 60% that I lost, giving that guy a fucking, I don't know what he got, like a $10 bonus for me signing <laughs> up for Bitcoin. And I wound up losing, like, I don't know, I only put in like 400 bucks, but it's down to like 200. And no, it's, I don't even know where I'm at. It's, I'm below, I forget it's but a I've gamble lost, <laughs> i've lost hundreds and he made ten dollars that's all yeah. i know
0: <laughs> well before we able go too far
2: to write it off though i was able to write off that
3: loss So there you go it makes it sting a little less
0: more work than it was probably worth but i, I want to go back because um you know not to that this isn't interesting but i want to talk a little bit about you and that you started your career super early And I wonder if you could talk about that. I mean, touring or recording albums already when you're 19 and like being sort of in the scene already, how did you get started? And like, how did your career take off so early?
2: Fake ID. (laughs) I'm serious. Everybody laughs. I'm dead. Serious. I'm dead. And I'm not kids. Don't try this at home. Um, and it's funny because we actually never continued speaking about because I went on a tangent, but we never s- continued speaking about how much different the industry was. Well, we can go back,
0: back to that. Yeah, that's was, a great... The
2: industry was, was a lot different back then in many ways. I mean, completely different New York and New Jersey had a scene that was just as happening, but in a different way as, as Hollywood and, and LA. I mean, bands like Twisted Sister would, would play all week long. They would have, their crews on salary those guys would play all week long all year long and the clubs were really really happening seven nights a week in new york and there was a really big hangout scene i started playing bars probably when i was 15 16 first time i played i was 13 my mom had to go it was an elks club in, in ridgewood new jersey but my club band which was called auntie was a band with my brother Anti, and we trademarked a name and it's pissed off a lot of people I've tried to use it. But um we were always looking for a singer for our band and we had a bunch of different singers. We had good it was a good band. And we were playing a lot of bars during the week. I was playing in bars and going to high school next. We opened for Metallica when I was in high school and went I went to high school the next day. The funniest thing about that is in this same house here. We were playing in a theater in Port Jervis opening for, for Metallica and Overkill, and the people from Megaforce contacted me because Metallica needed somewhere to stay, and my mother wouldn't let Metallica stay in the house. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That was probably a smart decision, man. Well, I, I probably would have had a completely different career route now, but, you know, it, 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 they're probably would have been a lot of help that may have happened at certain points. But there was we did the show and and my singer at the time, this guy named Blaze, he was like a really screwed up in the head Southern guy. And and um he brought in Pyro and lit it off when we were on stage and Metallica kicked us off stage. I remember the sign that their crew guys, huge crew guys standing on the side of the stage the sign says this is your last song. <gasps> oh jeez. So we got kicked we got Opened for Metallica got kicked off the stage and I guarantee if my mom let them stay at the house. We wouldn't have got thrown off the stage for the pyro. They probably would have let us use pyro being like, fuck yeah, man. Let's do this, Let's crash the house. So <laughs> it changed. You now we got, wow, we got thrown off the stage. But at that point in time, the drinking age in New York was 19. And when I was turning 17, the drinking age went to 21. My brother, who was a drummer in my band, he was 19. Now, how New York did it at that time was you could still go to the bars. You were grandfathered in at 19. And there was no photo licenses then. So my brother got a photo license. I had his non-photo license, a credit card, and a social security card at 17 we would go to clubs. I'd go in first as long as I made it... I looked fucking 10. As long as we made it past the security guys, (laughs) he would follow me 10 minutes later, 15... There was always a line to get in with his photo ID, and these guys never check names, so... It so you just worked. had to look
1: like you owned it, like you were supposed to be. Tell tell everybody, because there's a whole generation that don't understand what it's like to actually sneak in with a bullshit fake ID. Are we like trying to encourage to, this?
2: this? No, was, I want. No, these are great,
1: real bleak.
0: fake
2: IDs. <laughs> yeah, tell us about real. that. Well, you know, what? It, it, the, because so many people were 19 going to 21, you know, I was 17. It, I wasn't that much different. It wasn't like the 16-year-old kid trying to get in the 21-year-old place or the 14-year-old kid, you know? I was just basically a 17-year-old pretending to be 19. So it wasn't like a huge thing. But um, I wasn't drinking. I didn't even drink until I joined Sabotage. I, so it wasn't like I was going in there and drinking underage. I just wanted to see, you know, I was seeing a lot of bands at that time. I got to see, you know, things like Rondinelli when Ray Gillen was singing in there, and I became friends with Ray through through hanging out with that. And there was just so many great great bands that you would see in those clubs at that time that you wouldn't have seen anywhere else if you couldn't get in. But those places were open all those nights of the week. They let you play there at the, at that age, you know, because my brother was there kind of as like my chaperone. But to hang out, you had to have the ID. So we were at a place in New York City that there was a really cool hangout place because new york city had like there were seven nights of the week that you could go out any in new york city seven identical places like every week you would go this place on a monday this place it was they, every place had their certain night and on thursday in new york city in this building in times square that had the news going around it. it's right at mm-hmm. the corner of, of times square 42nd street it um had a club called Nirvana. It was an Indian restaurant that at night on Thursdays turned into a, a rock club, and it was a really cool place. Everybody would be there. I mean, the whole... Anybody that was anybody in, in, in New York City at that time would show up there. It was two floors, and they had a stage with the glass window overlooking the city. It was it was awesome, but at that point in time, I had met um the band heaven up there the singer from the band heaven who i actually had just saw i think it was probably new year's into um 87 i had just saw them playing at a a club in in queens called lemore east there was two Lemoors. and i was friends with ray and i was hanging out and that was actually the first night i ever met paul o'neill and this guy with the leather jacket and white shirt and black pants showed up and said hello and walked away and and I met Heaven and Heaven had that Knocking on Heaven's Door single at the time the one that kind of um, Guns N' Roses Swears was their idea for an arrangement the, uh, the heavy metal version of that tune which the Heaven version was awesome but Heaven and CBS kind of had like a falling out I don't know, remember exactly what the reasons were kind of similar reasons to the way dirty looks where we're you know label wanted something bam wanted something else and then so i i heard the mitch perry their guitar player left and i knew this and i'm 17. so it's funny because i was watching your video with nuno and he's talking about how he was young and and was like i'm gonna get in ozzy you know heaven was an ozzy but i was like you know i walked up to the singer i'm like i could let me try to get this gig so I gave the guy a cassette tape of my club band, Alan Fryer, that singer. And that singer, he passed away. And I don't want to scare singers that have worked with me, but 10 singers I've worked with in my career passed away. 10 wow. Yeah, 10 different singers, including Ray, Ray Gillen being one of the 10 different singers I've worked with.
1: For those away. that don't know Ray Gillen from Badlands, which was uh, such an incredible project and he
2: actually sang the original version of the Eternal Idol record for Sabbath. He was in Black Sabbath. And then he was in Blue Murder, but he had his own problems with the label, and David Geffen, I guess, at that point in time, didn't want... He thought Ray's voice sounded thin on tape, which was weird. Really? They, they let Ray go, and they couldn't find another singer. I remember, because uh, I was really, really good friends with Ray, and he Ray told me that David Geffen invited him back because they couldn't find a singer they liked good enough to replace him. Because the idea was to make Blue Murder like the younger new Zeppelin Whitesnake thing. And it would have been great with Sykes and Ray. But for some reason, Geffen didn't like the sound of Ray's voice on. That's how anal we were back then, where you would reject you uh-huh. like Ray Gillen. But um, they invited him back in and Ray had already started working with Jakey e. Lee. And David Geffen put a blank check in front of Ray and said, put in an amount. And Ray ripped it up and walked out of his office, and that—that and I know that because Ray had, had told me that story. But I gave Alan this tape, and he told me he was flying to L.A. to um, to audition some guitar players, and he would get a hold of me. While he was in the airport waiting to leave for L.A., he must have went to a freaking payphone. There was no phones at the time. I got a call at my house, and it was him, and he was told me he loved the tape and that he's going out to look at some people but he doesn't really think he's gonna need to take anybody he sees because he thought i was awesome so he went to la which i found out he actually i always work with the most the funniest people he told my management which was Libra krebs at the time david Krebs and, and steve lever were managing and paul was producing and managing heaven he told them that he was flying to la that he needed a flight to la to audition for a band with rudy sarzo that he was doing i think it was called driver or something they wanted to audition alan to sing and paul and them called up out of the management for sarzo when it, alan was out there and asked him how things were going with alan fryer and they were like who so alan just wanted the free trip to la <laughs> <laughs> So he goes out there on their dime and it comes back but i got that gig I and mean, i have i was 17 years old i have my first wow. pay, my first paycheck was from paul and uh wow. and david krebs bull i've checks saved checks from both of them one was just for work for a reimbursement for a, a hotel cost somewhere and then another was like um the $150 thing I got for a studio thing that I did one day. And um, that was it. We, we wrote a couple songs, and it was cool. We had we did some shows on the East Coast and the West Coast. The East Coast shows, one of them we had Skid Row pre-Sebastian opening at that point in time. That was at the uh, Lemories, too. And, and um, it was ironic because, you know, Paul O'Neill – was the band's manager, and we spent all the money we made at that show on lights, which became like our, our, no, you know, the thing we're known for with TSO is our lights. Paul was very right. but um, the bass player at the time was Tommy Henriksen, who you might know as a uh, you know, he, Alice
1: Cooper's band, yes,
2: yes, he goes by a different name and a different instrument in the Alice Cooper band, but I've known Tommy since I was 17, and he was a badass bass player and actually a great singer he had a a band tommy's awesome he had a he had a band on long island called rough cut and then he had his own band called tf hunter and i always tell you a song called secret lover that i could still sing he was a badass but that thing it just didn't it didn't work out because there was a lot of weirdness and alan just didn't conduct himself properly all the time the singer so I I think it was one of those things where you know the powers that be didn't necessarily really want to deal with him that much anymore and I kind of caught heaven with that management and Paul working them at the tail end and Paul's like look I'm going in the studio to work with this band called Sabotage and I love the band but I I really want to make their sound bigger and live I think they could use you So it turns around where he's like, here's, we got a Dio. I got Sabotage a Dio tour because Paul knew Wendy. So Sabotage was going to open for Dio and Megadeth in December of 87. And I had the gig, or at least I thought I had a gig. So I learned I got to Sabotage Records and, and I knew their music from the WSOU, their metal station. They used to play Sabotage a lot. In Back in
1: Jersey, College, yeah.
2: College station. College Station. And um I learned I learned every song they had. I really liked that band. You know, and uh it was December, and I was getting ready to go down there to rehearse. And the management the Sabotage had a guy named John Goldware who was managing a band with Paul. He called me up to tell me that. Sabotage took a guitar player in Florida and that they wanted to use him. And I was like, No, they didn't. (laughs) Uh, I was like, No. I said, Uh uh. I said, I've been working on this stuff for three months. I think it was at that time. I said, Let me go to Florida. I pay for my own plane flight. I'll go to Florida. And if they like me, pay me back. If they don't like me, I'll go back home. How old were you at this point? How old? Uh, Uh, I was
3: 19. 19. At wow, good for you. Uh, just one quick thing, just before we get too far into the, into like the sabotage years, um, I think the biggest point we have to make is that you got your first gig at 17 off a of tape. Do you have Yeah, any and idea? that was with the band on Columbia Records at the time, so... Do you have any idea, or like looking back, what about your playing at 17 was able to give you that leg up? Because most 17-year-old guitar players that I hear don't have something quite that special to stand out necessarily. So right. what was it about your style or, or that was on that tape, do you think made them kind of have that opinion of you? Probably just the fact
2: that I was good and I was creative. You know, there's something about, you know, people that have, I'll call it the quote unquote, it factor, you know, when somebody just is not the norm because you watch youtube nowadays you see seven there's 700 million kids out there that bowl the fuck out of me on guitar you know they can play everything sweeping screaming up and down 100 miles an hour every lick ever written but there's not one of them out of every thousand that i see that i go that guy is unique and i think it was just something about me that you know stood out plus you know i was a pretty boy and that was a big thing about that time you know they wanted you to have a certain look but i was you know i was nice i wasn't fucked up and i was good at what i did for that age and it was exceptional i was able to play you know the entire holy dire diver record when i was 15 you know when i was able to play the leads pretty damn close to what they were You know, there was some people that I thought I was playing their stuff like Malmsteen stuff where I was kind of playing fast, but not exactly in his arpeggios and notes. But I was I was I was a good player. And, you know, I had done those heaven live shows that with their music that they did in New York. And and, um, I I even flew out to L.A. the year before when I was um, I was still 18 at that time to play with heaven in california and we did some shows with like warrant opening up and out in in the west coast and there was a lot of the people out there watching when i was an 18 year old that were like you know you should move here because you would get a lot of things from going on but i was just i was always a new yorker i was a little bit too um new york to to go to california and, and stay so i went back and i and i went to florida and i got off the plane and there was nobody at the airport to get me no one showed up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're were <spooky. laughs> so i called the number i had and the drummer's like go just get a taxi i was like oh this is freaking lovely so the rehearsal place was like an hour north of the airport and i'm in this taxi i get there and i get out I, i'd met the guys before they're recording in new york city with paul and um, i plugged in and they're like well, what do you want to play and i said anything and they're like huh i said anything I said, I know every one of your songs, and they had five records out at the time. It's a so lot, yeah. Like, Get the fuck out. I said, any song you have, play it. So I think they went to one of the first two, there's a song called The Whip on, um. I, don't remember, I can't remember, Sirens and Dungeons were both recorded at the same time, but they were released at different times, so I can't remember exactly which of the two right now that was on, but they picked that because I guess they thought it was obscure and it would be something I didn't know. So I played through it and It was good and I could just see the look on their face because me and Chris Oliva's rhythm guitar styles were almost identical. It was creepy. When we played together and you put us left and right, it sounded like him recording two tracks in the studio and they could hear that in the rehearsal room. And then we played 24 hours ago and they stopped in the middle of the song, left the room, said we're right back and they said... We weren't even planning on using the guy we had. We told, again, I always get these people to make stories up to Paul O'Neill. Like, that we told <laughs> him we were using this kid from Florida, but we weren't even going to use him. And they go, This sounds fucking awesome. We want you to do this. And it just sounded, sabotage sounded better. And that was a weird thing because Chris was such a great guitar player, but they noticed something about their band sounding better with me than without me. So I did that tour, and, and Chris was having a little bit of trouble with psychologically dealing with the fact that people saw another guitar player. So at first, I got pushed to the side of the stage, and they pushed me off the stage, and it was just kind of like a real weird roller coaster ride. But I was 19, you know, I was opening for Dio in arenas at 19 with Megadeth, and I was out, and it, it was just fun. I really didn't care.
3: So so rolling into the the audition, knowing everything through and through, every song they could possibly choose. Uh, we've heard a similar story from a previous guest, Jimmy Bell, who who did that for his audition for autograph. Um, and it's something that kind of comes up in terms of like successful people we have on the show. Is that, that attitude of like, you know, go big, go home, like if you if you want it you if you want it, you're gonna do anything you can to get it. Is that something that uh was specific for that gig or is that an attitude that you you've kind of had throughout your career
2: i don't know i don't know i mean i think if i was auditioning for a band i didn't like i'd probably only learn what i had to you know but i loved sabotage's music so i kept going on to those records because i liked it you know i even stumbled through the fight for the rock stuff which they don't even like so (laughs) it it was kind of one of these things and and we i left in the middle of that mountain king tour and john Leave, i just remember saying he goes i'm gonna get you in this band and you know atlantic put me into the big mouth 30 looks thing that all happened really fast when i was you know just within the next like six months that at all that it all happened because see i had just turned 19 when that sabotage thing happened so it was i was like 18 in three months and you know, 19 in three months when it, when it, when it happened. So I still had time before I even turned 20 and I did the, the, um, big mouth thing, which was kind of funny. There's a video out there, the guy who directed the DJ Jazzy zeff videos. And, um, I got the, into the dirty looks thing, which like you said, at that point in time, I mean, the music business was totally different. There was such a thing as artist development. You know now mm-hmm. artists have to develop themselves doing this you know we kids have to be their own de- developers there's no tour support you know we would we would get incredibly large recording and tour support and video budgets back then i mean i'm talking half million dollar record deals and and that's on a low a lot of bands and you know we were spending a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars a video you know it was like just it was a different world but also back then people were actually buying records so the the industry was generating the money that it needed to lose money you know now they're barely making what they need to make money so they're not going to give you extra money because That's that's how the world works. There's not enough sales, so back then, you know, Atlantic would have A and R people situated all over the country watching local bands, and that was you know there was people working at Atlantic that. There wouldn't be a job for somebody like that now. Your job now would be to sit home and go, I just saw this on YouTube. You know, they wouldn't fly you into Indianapolis to see the yeah. cool local band that everybody's talking about, stick you in a hotel and you know and give you a, a dinner budget, it wouldn't happen. But um, you know, that the the dirty looks thing I was out of, and then within like a couple weeks, I think it was, because I heard Sabotage was planning on getting a hold of me the Levis called me up and they said, we want to talk to you. So I went into the studio. They were still recording at the same place. They did mountain King for gutter ballet. And we went to the roof of the record plant and John and Chris Leva were up there. Chris Oliva was the one who said it. He's like, well, even though we think you're a dick, we want you to join the band. (laughs) (laughs) And that was it, you know? And it was me who kind of screwed it up because I was still young and I had my band with my brother and my brother really wanted us to keep that going. And, every time i did something else i even got him into the heaven thing but the heaven singer didn't like him and and it was just one of these things where i was trying to drag my brother into things and it wasn't going to happen but i kind of left sabotage to go work with him and i should have just stayed in sabotage and it was just kind of a stupid decision and i was back working with john oliva within a year after i left anyway because he was out of the band but you know chris passed away and that actually became a real pivotal pivotal moment in, in everybody's lives and career with sabot- sabotage because you know him dying was like what do we do you know and and that's when um me and john had decided to get back into the into the band but um there's a lot of different things that happened in that that situation but it was amazing for me to um to get into sabotage i was in that band that as a member at 20 and then we did the gutter ballet tour when I just had turned 21. And that was a really big time on MTV eighty nine ninety, you know, for metal. I yeah. did the headbangers ball stuff and mm-hmm. I was doing all the press and they liked, you know, using me for the public stuff. Chris wasn't really at that time. He didn't really care about getting any kind of image stuff or doing that. He, he was just like, go ahead and do it. Me and his brother went out and did it. So, They'd send me an Oliva around to to make people laugh, but um, you know that was that was Paul O'Neill working with that then. So really, that's kind of where all this ties together because at seventeen years old, Paul O'Neill was the manager producer of of Heaven, and Paul's the manager producer of Sabotage, and Paul was the creator of, of TSO. And it's just kind of like I was lucky that at the age of of seventeen i um was able to to have that happen and like i said i was out in that bar in new york city that night because of the fact that i was able to use my brother's fake id so when it all happened, comes full yeah. circle Wow! <laughs> yeah. <But> I, mean, <laughs> I always believe like with any id came in handy yeah well it's kind of like that with anything in life though it's timing is everything i mean it's almost as simple as you're not going to win that scratch-off ticket in that lottery machine if you don't if you're not there when that is the next ticket coming out of the machine and it's kind of like that with just about anything in life and it happens a lot with the music business and you know it's nowadays it's like you know i'm um sabotage isn't playing at the moment i'd love them to play but we're not and people are like well what are you doing and it's like i do my solo stuff and i do you know tso was playing non holiday but then paul passed and he's not it's like well are you doing anything else and it's like to really actively pursue something that would be playing all the time, it's it's almost like it was when you're a kid. You got to go hang out, you got to be in the right place. Oh, I'm out going. It's Tuesday night, and you're at so and so's party here. And you had to drive two hours to it. You can't see at night driving. It's like to find hopefully that somebody's you know. So it's it's kind of one of these things. I'm I'm happy with where I'm at. I you know I did the new Spirits of Fire record. I'm writing a lot of music and doing a lot of art and working at home i'm not broke it's like i'm i'd love to be doing the sabotage thing you know that's what what i'd love to do more than anything right now is if sabotage could go back and 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 tour the world again but you know that has to come together on all fronts from all the way around or or it's not going to happen so i always sit there trying to stay positive about that we actually wrote some music and um i think we have enough to do a new record i just don't know what is going to happen with that right now. So we're just kind of getting through it. And, um, you know, TSO is finishing recording and we're going to release a lot of the unreleased stuff that was done by Paul O'Neill, because what people don't know is the, the best TSO record has not been released yet. And that's in my own personal opinion, but there was the very first TSO record that was ever done was this record called Romanoff that Paul was writing with John Oliva and, um, Bob Kinkle before Christmas Eve and Other Stories was even done. But when Sabotage released Dead Winter Dead and Christmas Eve Sarajevo hit the regular adult contemporary radio stations, and Atlantic is like the giant light bulb goes over their head, and what could we do with this song? You know, Paul decided to use his longtime idea for TSO on doing his Christmas trilogy first. So the Romanoff that's the name of that record kind of got pushed to the side and
1: can we just on pause for one moment because I remember you know I'm not exactly was it like mid 90s early 90s you guys had that record I remember seeing it come on MTV and being like because we're in a band called Lost Symphony where we have you know symphonic music with, with all of that and when I first heard Carol of the Bells I was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my fucking life as a child. (laughs) I was like, holy shit. First off, no stupid vocals. Straight to the guitar solos. And there's an orchestra. How fucking epic is this? And like you said, it's on adult contemporary radio. This is like a new sound that came out. Like, how did that feel for you being in a band that like, honestly, you're like, does it have vocals? No. It does it? Is it pop ready? Not really. I mean, it's Tchaikovsky, but like you know, that was nineteenth century. Like the it was fact that you guys were because, so.
2: It was funny because we were rehearsing for um the uh, the Dead Winter Dead tour of Europe in Florida, and Johnny Lee, the bass player, his dad owned an air conditioning company, and he would help his dad during the day. And he was driving from wherever he was in Tampa that day to rehearsal. And he gets in the room and and he was just like, you are you're not going to believe this. I just heard Sarajevo on Mix 96. And we all started laughing. And it was like, this was the adult contemporary station. He's like, dude, it was just on Mix 96. First of all, I'm laughing because... Sarieva was on Mix ninety six, but then second one I was like, why is Johnny Lee listening to Mix ninety six? <laughs> but I, <laughs> it was kind of like it was two parts to my thoughts at the time. But it just there was this Mason Dixon was his DJ down there, and he got a hold of the song. I think it was the guitar player from Kansas or somebody said, you got to hear this, and he heard it and he played it, and it went. He said the phones went bananas, where they normally would get like maybe twenty. Requests on a song. This was getting 300. You know, people were just calling like crazy. And he told his friend Scott Shannon in New York City about it. Scott was at, I believe it was PLJ at the time in New York. And they played it and it went to number one there right in front of Atlantic, you know, where they could turn on the radio and hear Sabotage number one requested on a a huge station in New York City. So they were like, well, what do we do with the song? Because we can't really sell Christmas under the name of Sabotage. And then that's when Paul said, well, let's release TSO, you know, he you know, stopped having his idea of having Romanoff be the first release and just went to that. And it just kind of snowballed from there. I mean, that's 26 years ago now this year. And, um, you know, everybody's everybody's lives changed from there. I mean, we didn't have any idea what was gonna happen there we went from playing sabotage played 1224 live at the mix 96 christmas party that year you know we were invited in as guests and and bob kinkle came down and played keyboards and we did that as that was the first time we played that song live in front of people and then now we play that song you know in front of a million people a year in arenas and it's just kind of it's been a crazy thing but uh
3: you say you didn't have any idea but like what was your initial opinion when you first you know played or heard that track like was it like oh this is something unique did you think it was something unique at least well paul knew it was paul his arrangement and he had that i
2: heard that when i was 17 mm-hmm. he was trying to get other bands to do it. paul was a big part of of helping break joe jet In her career in the United States, he was working with her and, and Joan had told me a lot of the story. So it's like, I'm not just making that up saying Paul told me something. It's like, I spoke to Joan at at, actually at Paul's funeral about Paul. And he really had a lot to do with what they were doing at the time. And they used little drummer boy with her singing and got it on to rock radio at Christmas time. And then in January released, I love rock and roll. And it was like a tool to get her name to a whole shitload of stations that were not rock ones along with the rock ones. And it just really, I think had a lot to do with the initial snowball of that song exploding out of the gate. And he had this song and he tried, I think he tried to get, they may have even done a demo of it, the Scorpions to record it and some other people. And, you know, I think even heaven had a, a recorded version of it, but he saw the dead winter dead record for sabotage to be the perfect time where he wrote it into the story where this cello player was, who was actually a real story for the, for the war there in Sarajevo was on top of a pile of, of burnt down buildings playing his, his cello. and, that was where this song, that intro to that song is supposed to be that guy and our, our record about that war, which, you know, now ironically, there's, there's some musicians that were out playing in this totally messed up war that's going on right now. But um, the, uh, the song just married that record, you know, and that, that's that point. So Paul finally had a chance to do it. I remember when <laughs> it was funny because Oliva wanted Dead Winter Dead Done so he could fly home. We were recording it in New York and we hadn't finished the record. As soon as the recording was done, John was able to leave before the mixing. But we, Paul wanted to do Sarajevo. So he paid John off. I forget how much it was to stay. He gave him, John, I'll give you five. He gave him some extra money and he stuck around and we did that song. Wow. uh, it's a true story. Oliva is actually was the first one to let it go. I always wanted to say it, but I was like, "Do I get in trouble?" But Oliva let it go to radio and interview so I know that it's not something I can't say. But that's what had actually happened with that. And I remember when we were mixing the song because I stayed in New York, and Paul had a writing apartment near where I lived in Astoria, and he had a a brownstone in the city, but he would go out to this place when we were finished in the studio at night. And I would go into the studio every day with him, even if I wasn't working just to hang out. And I like being in a studio. Paul always used the biggest, you know, cool studios. He'd go in there. We'd, he'd let me order whatever food I wanted from every local restaurant. <laughs> He's sitting there. I was like, I had my, my own stack of, of delivery things I could get. And uh, it was always fun, but I was listening to the final mix of that song. And I told him, I said, you know, i said i really think there's a hit song in this thing and he just goes from your lips to god's you know ears boss and that was what he said about it but i think he he always knew there was something good about that and different about that arrangement and it just it just took off i mean and that's you know the song for for what became the uh the catapult for tso you know it was like um it's, I always say it's like you know you don't know what would have happened the timing was right but that timing actually it worked for TSO it worked for everybody for that for that to be out then but um you know it was uh was definitely something that I you know you heard into it but I think Paul was the one who always knew the TSO was gonna do what it did because we were writing for the next sabotage record when TSO was going to to do um, the video for for sarajevo and and it, the sabotage guys we were in florida and he kind of did the video with silhouettes of bob Kinkel and petrelli and, and we were talking to paul about you know we're like paul we're not in the video it's like oh, we're not using people in the video. So, okay, all right because he didn't want to do what have to do with flying us to new york at that time just to do the the quick thing of the video and and um he's like don't worry when tso plays arenas we haven't even released the record yet and he was telling me you know <laughs> don't worry about getting in videos with tso headlines arenas so he was just you know trying to let us like don't worry about coming up to be a silhouette in this video where you know everything's going to be huge and he's so he's a
1: visionary through and through
2: exactly Absolutely. when we were in arenas he's like now in tso headlines stadiums now <laughs> granted you can't play a stadium in, in most of our markets in the winter time, but we'll play two shows in Dallas and two shows in, in Cleveland in the same day and have, you know, close to 60,000 people in one day. So TSO does stadium numbers in a single day. So he, he just, yeah, he just always, he always saw, and he's one of those people that was so driven at what he did. And, and he would, if somebody told him no, it would make him want to work harder to make it happen you know where a lot of people will will see something as a challenge and then walk away from it Paul would see it as a challenge and he would have to beat it and meet it and it just was something that always it always worked with that which um you know it's it's hard for us now with with Tso because you know it's we're still keeping his legacy alive and, and doing what he did but you know it's with without he was just such a huge part of his creation that it's 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 one of these things where i, I always want to call him and ask him what's going on next paul and it's like it's he was that guy he was like my dad and my brother and and you know something was wrong or had questions about money or politics or taxes or business deals or whatever he would he would always let me you know listen to his experience and then when he passed away i'm like oh, who am i going to call to talk about paul dying I can't call Paul. And it's just you know, it's a real weird thing. You know, life has definitely not been the same for any of us since he's passed away. I mean, we're still doing what we do. We still played the tour, it's still, you know, making money making music, but we're making it without him and it's 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 different, you know. I, I have to admit that. Do you think
1: it's like a tribute now though? Do you think that like
2: you know, you guys are
1: playing for him as much as just continue because what do you want um, this he what he you want it to be like to- now?
2: he would want us to do it he spoke to us about that you know he always wanted to keep tso going that's why tso is has the multiple bands you know because he sees it being larger than any one some you know that's why he doesn't he wasn't on the stage and doing you know he did his thing we do our thing it's like he considered it all you know one big giant thing and i think if um he he would expect it to be that way and i think that's kind of why also even with the um the singers being multiple where as time went on he's like you know these who's going to be able to do this when they reach x age you know as we could keep this going forever and he just wanted to keep keep the music alive and you know keep the art alive and that's i think the uh the thing he, he always said, you know, it's just uh, he wanted to to create the best piece of art he, he could. And if, if people liked it, then we we were we were being successful. But I think he always, you know, he had that that confidence about what he did, which I think people need. You know, he he was he was very, very sure about some things that a lot of us would go no way you know he, he was just he had that like i said that vision I mean the last show that, that we did in europe with with tso was a tso sabotage thing at that Bakken festival and and we had both we had sabotage play then tso the version play and then all tso musicians played on two stages at once there and it was eighty thousand people and it was, it was just crazy i mean it was uh something where you looked at it and was just larger than life. And that was all Paul. I mean, well, he-
1: that's important that you say that because it sounds like he thought about dividing and conquering was more important for the, for the great greater good of the art than just any one person, any one player, but that his vision, like whether you have to have two bands going across the country, playing two shows a day, it's about spreading the message. And it seems like you guys have done that. Like, I mean, if you say about it on, on paper, like, Hey, your band's going to be so big, you can pack the, the Centrum Center in Worcester, Massachusetts, two shows, and you're going to have another band playing simultaneously that's the same music, the same band, somewhere else in the country, selling out two shows a day. That's not, no one can replicate that. I don't even know where that exists. So that's just an incredible it testament yeah. to
2: who he was. Yeah, I mean, at, at that time of the year, too, we were challenged by the fact that, you know, we you know how it works you're promoting a tour you you promote with radio you know that's a big part of your promotions the radio works with us with the charities the radio does all these things and our music mm-hmm. hits radio stations after halloween you know it's like mm-hmm. and it usually stops at radio stations after for sure. new Year's. so it's like you've got this x amount of time to go make this happen so it's like well how are we going to do that and then it was like what's you know, clone ourselves, and, and that's where Eastern West came in, and it just wound up being. You know, it's there's still places we could play. We, you know, there there could be multiple more TSOs. I mean, you can't you can't get to Europe while you're covering the states, and you can't it's just like parts of North America. You can't. It's just it's it's one of these things where it's a magical time of the year, that music just happens to hit people in a certain way, and it's just the whole presentation and the show is just it's it's different, you know, and it's it goes from the ages eight to eighty and it reaches everybody. So it's kind of one of these things that, you know, you're not really limited to a year or a time and 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 every year there's still people who haven't seen it. I still look on the website and I'll see people saying, How are you playing in Pittsburgh and Tampa on the same day? You're like Santa (laughs) 25 years <laughs> later, still people that don't know there's an East and West. I mean, it's yeah. it, it, uh, it's amazing that when I'll be on stage and I'll talk to the crowd before about the charity stuff, and I'll say, how many people have never seen TSO before? And it's still 50% of the crowd raising their hands. So there's
3: yeah,
2: amazing a number of people that you could still reach with it. It's it's pretty crazy.
3: Yeah. Um, so we're coming to the end of our first hour, part one. Uh. And I mean, what a highlight! Just, just TSO is such an unrivaled force. So I appreciate the insight into that, and then how you you experienced that. The
1: execution of uh, of a dream is unparalleled.
3: Yeah, and yeah. we have we have a whole other. Hour to talk, and I definitely want to get into kind of what you're up to now, especially with the Spirits of Fire stuff, and and you you know your solo. Because we'll be
2: here till like seven thirty, and I'll still be talking about TSO.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's still a lot more. There's still a lot more. A lot more. You're getting twenty twenty because we're going to make
1: people come back and listen to the rest of this because I I'm riveted. We get to talk to you in a second. They have to wait till later in the week. But that said, like Chris, thank you for sharing your heart with us, bro.
2: I have I have lifetimes of stuff, and I didn't even hit you know a small amount of any of no i
3: already hour. have a lot
0: of i have a lot of questions uh, still just based on what we've talked about we're so going to
3: continue our discussion in part two but chris uh just anything you want to let people know about right now i know you know any your social media is it uh, chris caffrey official i think on instagram uh twitter is just yeah, Chris Caffrey. there's another chris caffrey fake on instagram <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> i think I've you made got, it yeah, no, I've had like fifteen fakes. People have been faking. You made me. it fifteen <laughs> times. Yeah, but today there's a new one today, and they always block me and message everybody as me. You know, it's like hi. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even like people. Never mind let's start. <laughs> I'm like start. I'm I'm not that way. But you know, it's like I don't want to like just find random people and start saying, hey, I barely got time to do the lawn today. It's like you know, it's like I gotta sit there and. And on that
1: note, if it's not Chris Caffrey official, it ain't Chris Caffrey. Come back later this week. You've <laughs> well, been 2020.
2: It, like, well, there's a reason, too. Like, I don't have the blue <laughs> dot right now because I left Instagram because the Russians, seriously, the Russians hacked my Instagram like three and what? a half years ago. All of a sudden, one day, I couldn't get on my Instagram. So I went to sign on it. It was taken, and there was a new email that got my Instagram. So I. I had the message Instagram and do the thing where you're holding the they send you a number, you got to write it on a piece of paper and hold it. They need to verify it's you, then they shut that down. And after that, I was just like, screw this, and I didn't go anywhere near it. And Instagram was kind of not rich, you know, Facebook was still the thing at the time. I had 200,000 followers on my music page, so I bailed out of Instagram at like probably 15,000 followers and I just bailed on it. They're all gone. And then all of a sudden everybody I know had like 20 twenty, thirty thousand followers, like, you gotta get back to Instagram. And then TSO was doing a pay-per-view in twenty twenty and they're like, Can you do this radio interview? And the radio guy's like, We do it as a link through Instagram. I'm like, all right, I'll go back. So I started back on the Instagram and now I got like eleven thousand, you know, followers or whatever, close to it. And I still don't have the blue dot. And I'm trying to explain to Instagram, who, who's owned by the same company as Facebook, that I'm the guy on Facebook with the blue dot. Why can't I get your freaking blue dot? And it's like, I can't I couldn't even report. I'm trying to report this guy as a fake today. And if you want to put as a public figure, you need to have the blue dot to report as that. So I can't report myself as real because these bozos don't
3: know how to make me real. Just put the fucking blue dot on. I mean. So are you actually real? Who are we talking to here?
0: <laughs> instagram if you're listening give chris the fucking blue, blue
3: dot <laughs> we'll get a blue dot before me all right she's more he's more real than me let's pick this let's pick this up next week 2020-d.com thanks again chris we'll talk to you soon Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-D.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 114 featuring Roddy Chong of Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Check it out.
1: And I got to tell you, first of all, I'm in the string section. The string section, there's six strings to help balance out the staging and and also the sound of Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And I'm watching this show from the stage and I did not understand the show. Like I'm playing and it's like... It's just like fog and I can see different colors going on. But what I did understand in San Diego and Los Angeles at the Coliseum was a matinee and an evening show both sold out. Like, I understood the ticket sales. I'm like, something is going on with this band.